0: These, some people own
1: stocks. Welcome to Playing Footsie, the podcast where we talk about stocks, investing, and personal finance. Before we start, we want to make it clear that the information presented on this show is for informational and entertainment purposes only. None of us is a financial advisor, and this is not financial advice. Investing in the stock market comes with risks, and we strongly encourage our listeners to do their own research and consult with a licensed financial advisor before making any investment decisions. Now, let's dive into the world of finance and talk about what we're doing with our money.
0: So the sucker's going up.
1: Welcome to the Playing Pootsie Show. I'm Steve W. I've got Steve D. with me at the end of another really quite exciting week, actually, this week in the stock market. There's been macro news out of the UK and the US. We've started US earnings season with some news from some banks. Um, and the markets are generally moving slightly higher. My portfolio is not. I'm down this week. but Steve, you've had a better week than me in uh, the stock market. And how have things been going elsewhere?
0: Pretty decent week, Steve. Um, I have uh, been pretty busy at work. We've got quite a lot going on. Um, you've got your customary picture of some four terabricks on uh, Tuesday or Wednesday, whichever day I was out. Um, yeah, sites are uh, starting to ramp up a little bit. The inquiries are, are flowing in and it looks a, a little bit a little bit more positive. Um, like I said, I had all of December off because I was on paternity leave and then I took some holidays and then we have a Christmas shutdown as well, so uh so i i missed the whole well my whole my whole sales for the whole of december steve was 900 pounds um bearing in mind that um i'm supposed to do about a million pound a year uh it makes a significant dent in any kind of uh attempt to 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 get to that uh, it was the lowest amount of sales that they've ever had um at the at the company in a month and it was uh i think it was something like two percent of my supposed budget so um yeah, it wasn't like that for everyone. Uh, otherwise, I would be out of a job. But, um, yeah, I, I think I, I just missed every opportunity possibly, uh, possible. But stock, Steve, is the other way around. Uh, I'm up about 2.35% on the week. I've had a pretty stellar week. Uh, even though half the stocks that I've picked are actually red uh, this, on this week. Um, the, 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 the 14 green ones that I've got. Uh, are up quite a bit. Uh, I've got uh, Nintendo. Um, when you adjust it for FX, is up about nine percent. Adgen up five. Wise up four. Amazon up three point seven. Uh, Alphabet up two point seven four. Autodesk up three. Deckers up three point two. So it, they're some of my bigger holdings. So they've been uh, they've been pretty pretty positive. Fortinet would have been a bit more, but they had a bit of a wobble in the middle. That's been a really strong performer at the beginning of this year. That stock that we spoke about last year, and I, I said that I really like the look of. Um, I've been buying and buying and buying that position, its it's got quite big for me and uh, I think it's going to have a, a pretty decent couple of years, even though we talked about it having those two massive falls, Steve, it's, it's still fan, uh, finished above the S&P last year, uh, even with the two falls included, so... I think it's going to be a pretty strong performer. I'm excited to see uh, just where it goes from here. Um, but yeah, really, really happy with the portfolio. I've got a new addition, Steve, but we're going to talk about it a bit later. Um, I'm quite excited to talk about it. It's an old flame. We're reacquainted. Um, but yeah, all going well here, Steve. How about you?
1: Yeah, I like your uh, new edition. I like your new edition for this kind of market that we're in, actually, as well. But um, the other way around on mine, the late US uh, bank earnings stuff came out and weren't, well, market had mixed reaction to those. If it was JP Morgan, then things went very well. And if it was anybody else, then they didn't go so well. I guess the other kind of winner was Wells Fargo with making slightly better progress than people were expecting. But that's still some way from its, uh, I guess, final form, if we call it that. Um, bank of America didn't do terribly well. And its largest investment by kind of monetary value I had is took a step back yesterday uh, if you zoom out the bank of america share price chart uh last three months rather than the last sort of day or so you actually see quite a bit of sort of upward shape uh, there as you might well do kind of coming out of it, it took a while to get back off of this um uh, crisis kind of levels and eventually i sort of stopped buying it although i bought plenty at, at decent-ish prices and i'm now fractionally red which is a kind of annoying uh it's not far enough to me to think okay, this is now the best thing that I can buy here. I think you're probably fine to buy it here, but it's not a state where I think, yeah, that's that's real buying opportunity stuff, but just a sort of slight step back over the last uh, day or so, which was ultimately around a percent or so, and my portfolio is down similar. I point out that portfolio isn't just Bank of America. In fact, it's, yeah, down 1.06, and I'm down 1.18 uh, for the week. Oh, well, these things happen. S&P is up, so I'm underperforming. There, but not up as much as you are, from what I remember. Um, we'll see how things go, I guess, through the next sort of earnings uh, few weeks. And we'll we'll talk about some of our favorites along the way on the show. I'm interested in uh, this particular earnings setup. It feels to me like there was a time not so long ago when analysts were all expecting sort of 8% growth for the S&P in the earnings cycle that we're seeing at the moment, which is Q4, uh, effectively, or calendar year Q4 of last year that we're hearing the results from. There were a few kind of ugly bits coming into it, though. Nike had some earnings that caused its stock to fall quite sharply. FedEx had some earnings that caused its stock to fall quite sharply. The idea that 8% growth is going to kind of come through for the index as a whole, and I know that both Nike and FedEx are a bit more cyclical than other things, um, that seems to me to be a little less likely, and I think I'm seeing estimates getting kind of pushed further ahead at the moment, so they're looking for more like um, 3 or 4% growth rather than the 8 they were initially talking about, with further to come in 2024, especially Q424. So so I've been processing that a little bit this week. I'm now back home. Um, I was in Scotland between New Year's Day and, well, basically Wednesday, and came back to an awful lot of firefighting at work, where everything seemed to be kind of going wrong when I've spent the last two days trying to sort of emergency correct all of that stuff. So I'm hopefully we're now in a decent place for the start of term, uh, which is coming for us. But um, aside from that, things are reasonably good, chaotic at work because start of term always is and made extra so by me being away for a bit. Uh, portfolio down slightly, but not not an appreciable amount that makes me think, aha, screaming buying opportunities here. Um, and that's sort of roughly the, the shape of that sort of thing. What have you consumed this week, Steve?
0: I've got a really interesting uh, consumption, Steve. It's uh, it's uh, another one where we're going back to the well, uh, but this time it's the Financial Times podcast uh, uh, behind the money specials. And this one is called um, The Ponzi Scheme Behind Lebanon uh, Lebanon's Economic Collapse. And it's uh, basically um, a rundown of a story that the Financial Times have been doing on uh, Lebanon's central banker, uh, who's just retired, um, Riyad salami and it's a really interesting take on uh, somebody who has gone into the central bank he's been sort of praised for being sort of a, like a, a revolutionary uh, sort of uh, central banker he a few times has been named um, the world's best central banker for the things he's done but actually now that the sort of like excitement around what he's done has uh, started to dissipate Uh, He's now actually being regarded as the world's worst um, central banker. And this is a story of uh, Ponzi schemes, of um, uh, opaque banking uh, and taking advantage of that, of funneling money out through companies that don't really exist. And it's almost certainly going to be a book. It's a really exciting uh, kind of thing. Uh, When we were going to site the other day, uh, I, just had it on sort of in the background while I was driving uh, and I had the junior with me who's not interested in finance at all. And when it finished, he was like, oh my God, that was really exciting and really interesting. And I thought, yeah, this is the one, this is the consumption one this week, I think, because um, I just couldn't believe it, Steve. It's just one of those twists and tails and the money amounts getting bigger and bigger. And like even going through things like uh, him forgetting he had a hundred thousand pound in a suitcase uh, when he got to uh, Paris in, in notes, um and um, this is all at the time when uh, Lebanon's uh, economy had collapsed and there were uh, people were living on a hundred pound a month uh, and he's forgetting he has a hundred thousand pound in a suitcase which is strange because it's it's not a particularly well paid position uh um that he that he's in so um but yeah things like lying about his fortune uh he he reckons his fortune was 20 million from his time working at merrill lynch and then when the ft do a private investigation with him he's bragging about it being 10 15 times that amount um which is unusual um but yeah all sorts of shadowy dirty scary things going on um and i think it's uh well i think it be probably the best 23 minutes you spend uh this week listening to it wow any thoughts on that okay. Steve?
1: uh i love a good ponzi scheme scandal central bank money laundering thing um I, I i like these very much when they appear on stuff like netflix which i don't currently have access to so hopefully someone will make it and stick it on youtube uh for me um I, i'm interested in in some of these things i guess more generally the way that kind of central bank Fortune sort of wax and wane, particularly in what you might consider to be sort of developing countries. I'm reminded of the El Salvador guy who decided he was going to start accepting Bitcoin as a a national currency and then started laughing at the UK when uh, we had the brief trust government pound going through the floor um, thing. And you sort of thought, really? I mean, is that that's kind of the way we're kind of getting ourselves behind these things? I don't have a I haven't been following the story uh in Lebanon put it that way so I wouldn't have been able to call um obvious fraud or obvious Ponzi scheme at the time uh, or anything like that so every vision I have of this is hindsight to a certain extent but yeah it feels like some of the things that go on in these places is is endlessly fascinating how it happens and, and occasionally people think no nah, this is just the kind of latest theory of how stuff happens right turns out things that are this is a special type of pyramid scheme um and and it doesn't really matter because we'll never actually uh reach the kind of well top or bottom or whichever way round you work in a,
0: uh, a pyramid scheme so I think it sounds really interesting he he would have gone up he probably would have gone away with it forever so uh, the story is and i won't spoil it too much is he basically when he came in decided to peg the um the uh, lebanon pound to the dollar at a fixed rate. And the Mm -hmm. reason he did that is because the surrounding areas are very, very, very rich uh, areas, uh, quite sort of dirty money kind of areas. And basically, Lebanon's banking system is so opaque that um, there's a huge flow of dollars always coming into uh, Lebanon to use their dodgy banking system. And so long as they could keep up this flow of dollars into the economy, um, Lebanon could uh, essentially... Carry on this this peg uh, it, it indefinitely would it would essentially work um, exactly as intended. The issue being that uh, Syria started to um, started a, a civil war, and the whole area sided with the rebels or the surrounding area sided with the rebels, and Lebanon's government decided to um, to side with uh, al Bashad, uh, and because they did that, um, the money stopped flowing in. And then it was really, really apparent that Lebanon had been living beyond its means. So uh, the revolutionary banker um uh, started to become untangled um, and then decided that he would come up with a new policy. And I won't spoil the new policy because that is in the uh, episode. And it's very interesting. And uh, I mean, it even has some quotes where somebody directly asks him, um, uh, you do realize this is a Ponzi scheme, and you are like Charles Ponzi, and he says, oh, <laughs> "Forgive me, I am not as smart as Charles Ponzi." And you're like, "Wow, do you know what I mean?" <laughs> like, "Wow, I'm Bernie Madoff." He gets comforted, confer- uh, confer- and he says, "No, I'm not as smart as Madoff and and Mr. Ponzi." You're like, "Right, okay." <laughs> but yeah, it's really good. I must admit, I I, I-, I thoroughly enjoyed. It. I've actually listened to it twice now because I, I enjoyed it so much. I-, I just went back to see what I missed the first time while I was driving. So, um, yeah, highly recommended.
1: Yeah, I could never pull off a heist like that. is uh, is kind of um, it's a sort of odd uh, kind of defence, I guess, especially for someone who's in in sort of public office. Of, I'm not as clever as all that um, in in your kind of central bank. You're saying about twenty five minutes worth of listening, ben, uh Steve. I will carve out time for it if it's something in that
0: region. You think? Yeah, go for it. I think it's less than that, Steve, because it's got a bit on the big uh, beginning, and a bit on the end for uh, a different show, I believe. So it's probably yeah, a twenty minute show at best.
1: Great. I'm. I'm just at the moment looking for stuff to listen to. It feels like kind of uh, stuff that podcasts come in sort of waves for me a little bit. And um, it's Saturday, so there'll be a few kind of coming out and stuff on YouTube as well. But I tend to get to this point in the middle of the week now where I've sort of almost always exhausted uh, the stuff that I want to hear for the week. Especially if it's the case that the business breakdowns episode that comes out around Wednesday, Thursday, isn't one for me uh, at this time, or isn't one that I'm particularly uh, keen on. A lot of the time, it is. Even where I don't think it is, I, I regularly benefit by kind of uh, listening to them. But um, I think uh, this might well be a week where I have a, a 20 minutes to have a listen to something like that. So that'll be that'll be good fun. Looking forward to it.
0: If you um, find another 15 yeah. minutes, there's another one on the same show about Novo Nordisk and about the... Um... The um, uh, Ozempic and Wegovy, uh, it's a really interesting show. They're basically in the labs at uh, Nova Nordisk and they're telling you what they see in the labs. And it's it's a lot more high-tech than you would expect, which you would mm. assume, Steve, brings down the costs of uh, of drug production uh, when they're testing pretty much everything by uh, by robotics and, and machine. Uh, but yeah, really interesting. Uh, that, that's another one just to tack on the end, but they were both really, really interesting podcasts this week from uh, from Behind the Money. Cool.
1: Um, Nova Nordisk is uh, a company, I guess, that I, without having looked very closely, feel like I'm too late to um, or, or feel like I'm at the wrong time or something like that. Right? I mean, it's one of the kind of companies that everyone is uh, incredibly um, optimistic about in terms of weight loss drugs and uh, Zempic. Same with Eli Lilly and Wigovi, I think is theirs. It feels to me like a strange time to be looking at trying to buy those, but hey, maybe I'm wrong. If this stuff really takes off, then uh, then then this could be huge, although I think they're currently priced for a fair bit of um, hugeness. My kind of thing I was consuming this week, uh, predictably then is not a podcast, since I said I'd pretty much run out of them to listen to for the time being, it's, uh, well, it seems to be that time of year, uh, around sort of the early January bit, where people are writing their letters for 2023. Letters to shareholders, letters to investors, letters to, as far as I can tell, people are writing them who don't have a fund and therefore um, don't have any shareholders or investors or whatever. But nonetheless, letters to anyone who will read them. Uh, And the one that I've been looking at this week, well, I have looked at a couple this week, but one of them was terrible. So the other one uh, that I've been looking at is Terry Smith's one uh, from Fundsmith. As you probably know, if you've listened to this show for a long time, I'm not a massive lover of Fundsmith for a number of reasons, some of which are to do with Terry Smith some of which are not, uh, to be honest, some of which are just, um, if everyone wandered around calling anybody the UK's Warren Buffett, I would probably hate them. But um, nonetheless, here are some things from the Fondsmith uh, letter to shareholders that have been standing out to me. Um, I think, well, I, I kind of mentioned that I'd seen this, Steve, and you'd also seen it at the same time, but I'll, I'll, I'll run you through my kind of selected highlights of these things. Let's start with the kind of returns then. Uh, So the fund was up 12.4%. Importantly, this is net of fees, so you don't have to subtract anything out of this to get to the return. 12.4% for the year is what the fund managed in 2023. Um, Underperforming the VWRL ECF at 17% uh, also uh, Underperforming me at 21-ish percent. Underperforming the S&P at 25-ish percent. And underperforming Steve D at 30%. But... The only one of those that they compare themselves to or the only one of those that they provide data on is the VWRL uh, at 17%. So an under year uh, for them on that one. I don't know why that's the case, by the way. They say the fund is not run against any kind of benchmark. It's not out to beat any kind of um, index or anything like that. That's fine. um, But VWRL is a a lower bar to try and clear than the S&P and to point out that they missed it by actually quite a bit. Uh, they only got to about sort of two-thirds of the return of VWRL uh, last year. We'll come back to why that is in a little bit. Uh, The other parts of the letter that interest me are, well, the UK's Warren Buffett, uh, as he calls himself, and other people call him, mostly other people, I think. Here is the big point that I always make, and I'll make it again because I feel bad talking about Terry Smith without saying this. Here's the main difference between Terry Smith and Warren Buffett. Warren Buffett doesn't charge fees to people who buy Berkshire Hathaway shares. Um, simple as. Uh, there isn't a fund. There isn't a management fee. You buy the stock. You own the businesses. You own them alongside um, Buffett. There's no – I mean, there are two sort of sets of shares. There's the Class A and the Class B here. Uh, and the main difference is the Class A has, I think, say over where charitable distributions go. Um, but there isn't any kind of differentiated B structure for uh, for those things or difference in voting rights other than a B share is smaller than an A share and carries a proportionally smaller uh weight. But the weighting uh, the the kind of number the amount you invest in B shares to get the same is what you get if you invested in an A share, uh, effectively. Um, so, yeah, there's a 1% fee on this, and Terry Smith continues to stick up for this. He wants to say this is absolutely fine and people shouldn't be worried about this. And people are always talking about the fees, and they should ignore the fees, and they should just focus on the returns of the thing. I'm not sure I would be saying that in a year where the returns of the thing are uh, below VWRL by some margin. But anyway, uh, that's his, he, he continues to try and stick by this idea of charging fees to everyone. On the subject of their portfolio, Um, then uh, he points out, and I think this is a point that I liked about the um, letter. He says that the average P.E. of the stocks they own is slightly higher than the average P.E. of the S&P 500. Uh, And he says that's fine because, uh, or he doesn't have a problem with that and it doesn't automatically mean they're expensive because he thinks they're better than the average stocks from the S&P 500. And I guess, sure you do, otherwise why would you own them? He might be right, might be wrong, but that's probably the reason for for owning those ones and he does say that a high PE doesn't automatically mean they're expensive in the same way that a low PE doesn't automatically mean a stock is cheap. Uh, you might have a stock with a low PE that's terrible because it's going to zero Um and therefore trading at nearly nothing at like two times earnings or something along those lines or its earnings are going to collapse and so on. And in the same way we wouldn't say that automatically means oh look it's cheap because it's trading at five. Um We wouldn't we shouldn't say it's expensive because it's trading at, well, I guess the lesson of NVIDIA last year would be uh, if it's trading at 100 and something. To be honest, if they double, it comes down. And if they double again, it comes down quicker and you suddenly look like you're in the right place. The main reason they've underperformed, I guess, is this big rise of AI, which has in many ways passed Fundsmith by. uh, And that's okay. They don't necessarily have to participate in every growth, everything going. Um, But the letter read slightly... Slightly sore loser uh, about that one, uh, to my mind here. Um, he was complaining. He said a Magnificent Seven. We don't own all the uh, Magnificent Seven stocks, and we would probably not be willing to take the risk of owning them, even if they all fitted our criteria. I didn't really know quite what that meant. I mean, he owns some of them. Uh, definitely owns Meta, Meta being one of their top-performing stocks. Pretty sure he owns Alphabet and Amazon as well. Don't know about the others. Definitely owns Microsoft too, actually. Um, but I assume doesn't own NVIDIA or Tesla. That's fine. But I'm not sure quite what risk there is to spreading whatever your allocation for US tech is out over seven things rather than over three things, uh, or US big tech. I'm not saying you should necessarily lump your entire portfolio into it. But if they all fit your investment criteria, and that's a big if, and they currently don't, what the risk of owning seven rather than four, say, uh, is, is it somewhat passes me by here. It gets you a bit more diversification, not massive amount more diversification because it's all big cap, uh, all tech and all US, but, uh, and all stocks. Um, but nonetheless, I got sort of lost out there. The real highlight of the piece, though, is um, him complaining that it looks like the market has decided who the winners in AI are going to be. Companies like NVIDIA, companies like Microsoft, companies like, to an extent, Google and Meta as well. Um, and he points out that, look, the market has decided before who big winners in various um, shifts are going to be. Uh, and that was Intel in the case of microchips and AOL in the case of the internet and Nokia in the case of mobile phones and Yahoo in the case of search and BlackBerry in the case of smartphones and MySpace in the case of social media. And all of those have gone, uh, they've been bad investments from the time people thought they were going to be winners, basically, or underperforming investments to more or less of a degree. Some people might think they're better or worse um, Now, So he says, look, we're agnostic as to uh, who's going to be the winners of AI. We're not convinced that um, the market's got this right because the market generally doesn't get this right first time around. And I think to myself, kind of, okay, But are we going to ignore the fact then that NVIDIA's earnings, not just its stock for the moment, its earnings, i.e. the money it's generating by selling chips to well, everyone possibly including the Chinese right now have gone uh, per share have gone from $1.92 to $4.14 to $7.58 in the space of three years. Uh, The the thing's more than tripled in terms of earnings. Uh, That's okay. You might wonder about the durability of any of these things. It's a fair question. But it does seem like the market is reflecting the fact that, look, NVIDIA and Microsoft, and to an extent Google, uh, and to an extent Meta, and maybe kind of Apple but less directly, What they are doing is winning uh, at the moment. Um, And that's just the case at the business level as much as it is at the stock level. So, yeah, I enjoyed his grumpiness uh, at AI, uh, attempting to point out that that's why he's underperformed here and attempting to go sort of all stock market irrationality on stuff. It's an interesting read. Uh, Am I tempted to buy anything that Fundsmith has to do? No. Um, I listened to their annual shareholder meeting thing during COVID because there was really nothing else to do. Made me incredibly angry. Uh, but I do like the point, and I intend to use this in future in my own writing, that high P.E. doesn't mean expensive any more than the low P.E. automatically means cheap. Uh, I thought that was a quite a nice little insight um, there, or a nice little way of putting the same thing. I get the impression he puts a lot of time and thought into his um, letter, by the way. So uh, respect for that. It's, it's the best. Um, I'm going to say letter to shareholders. You can call them letter to shareholders, letters to investors, letters to I don't know who. Um, that I read this week out of the two that I looked at. Anyway, Steve, you've had a look.
0: Um, yeah, I mean, we're basically of one mind here, Steve, with this. I went through the same thing and sort of giggled all the way through it. Uh, I particularly enjoyed the bit at the beginning where he said that, you you know, we, we've we underperformed, but we were significantly less volatile while it happened. Uh, and it was like, well that's that's definitely a selling point um yes you underperform the market by like five or six percentage points but we didn't have as much uh down and ups uh during the year um yeah that's that's definitely something especially for somebody who uh, is keen to remind you of uh, how well they perform uh the minute they don't perform um yeah they're trying to remind you about something else um which is uh you know, by the by, I I would have much preferred him to skip that whole paragraph out and just to talk about the performance. And then he goes on to that nice paragraph where he just says that you shouldn't expect us to outperform the market every year. Um, you know, outperforming the market is something we will do over a 10 year period, not over one. It didn't need all the sort of whinginess at the beginning. And I think that's a little bit, I mean, Terry Smith has a, has a bit of an ego uh, and, but maybe rightly so, Steve, because he's, he's outperformed the market for a long period of time he deserves his ego but right then was a time to have your ego in check and uh i i don't think he had it they've hardly been humbled by the market as well it's it's not like something that you would look at and say look you guys you guys have done one percent and the market's done you know 50 percent um They've done twelve and a half, and the market's done sixteen point eight. There's not a huge gap uh, between the two there, uh, and it's not something that you couldn't make up in the early parts of uh, of this year if we have an accommodating market and you've got the right stock, Steve. So um, the other point about the the Mag Seven, well, he's got five of the Mag Seven, but he also has the next ones as well because he's got sort of Visa and, uh, and Nike. Um, uh, and um he's got um striker another massive you know massive companies that are a million miles away from sort of like top 20 stocks in in the S&P so i can't really uh back him up there he's got a, a MSCI as well obviously that's a, another massive uh, a massive company so and obviously mastercard um as well he's got a lot of companies in there that are like very very close to the magnificent 7 or could be you know magnificent 10 if we decided to stretch it out a little bit um so yeah i don't really buy that argument and i also same as you didn't buy his argument with nvidia it's okay to say hey look nvidia went up this amount and i didn't own it and that's why it contributes but it's all rubbish but that's not the truth is it the truth is is that when the earnings follow um the the stock price that's not hype that is a company performing now It's up to you to decide whether that company continues to perform or this is like growth pulled forward that's going to retreat or this is growth pulled forward and the stock's going to be stagnant for 20 years. That's up to the investor to decide. But it's it's a poor excuse to say... You know, it went up because, uh, and I don't own it, and that's why I fell behind. But it, you know, there, there was no reason for it to go up. There was clear reasons why Nvidia went up, um, and uh, some investors anticipated it, and some didn't. And it doesn't make you a bad investor if you, if you know, something like Nvidia is out of your circle of competence, and you you didn't anticipate that that huge amount of growth. Um and and you know and in the same vein congratulations to those that do know the market and did know it and um, because you've done very well this year and um, yeah I just I don't know I, probably the same as you Steve I, I felt like this was a little bit of a whinge I would sooner he kept his ego in check and um, just got on to the matter of fact reporting that he's got a wonderful fund with wonderful wonderful performance and he's had a singular bad year I think.
1: The point about volatility is very fun, since he then goes on to compare uh, his fund to uh, a bond ETF uh, and says, "Look, if you'd invested in the bond ETF ages ago, it's Barry Warren Buffett, by the way. That's lifted out of the 2022. Uh, that's the shareholders from Buffett. But um, if you, yeah, if you'd bought the bond fund, uh, you would have done a lot worse uh, since inception or since however long than if you'd bought into uh, Fundsmith, and that's true." So he wonders then, well, why would anyone buy the Bond Answer: so Because they can't handle the volatility. Well, okay, look, if not handling volatility is a bad thing, we shouldn't be making big uh, you know, capital out of the fact that, oh, hey, we were less volatile than the S&P, though we underperformed it by about half um, in, in this particular year. Anyway, whinging about Terry Smith can go on for uh, some time. I assume you're not planning on investing in Fundsmith anytime soon, Steve, or indeed fund anything particularly?
0: Well, I've just had the junior sip open for Olivia, so um, I am looking for something that I can start to plow um, some money into uh, um, on hagu's Lansdowne. Uh, I'm thinking uh, uh, it'll probably be a mix of um, the uh, Aberdeen uh, Sterling Money Market Fund uh, will probably hold the cash. Uh, I'm thinking um, most of it will be in a global all cap. And then I've been eyeing up the Oak Tree Speciality Lending Fund as well. Um, That's a fund that over the last sort of eight years has stayed fairly static, but pays a 10% dividend, Steve, which is a suitable return for uh, a low-end risk kind of um, of position, uh, obviously managed by... um, um, it's not Marx, It's Armin who does the uh, mm-hmm. Insight Show. whose second name I wouldn't try to uh, pronounce when I can't quite remember it. Um, but yeah, it's uh, um a quite an interesting fund that I might pair with the uh, with the Global All Cap. I might just go with Global All Cap. I haven't really decided uh, at the moment. I can't do anything because for whatever reason, Hargreaves London hasn't been accepting deposits for the last uh, about seventy two hours. So we shall see if that improves. That's
1: interesting. you could probably buy their entire company with the kind of deposits you're looking at and the way their stock is going um, but here's something else you could try buying uh, I wouldn't, but maybe you might uh Jesse Custer asked us in the i think comments on YouTube about covered call etFs um, and specifically asked what they are uh what ones there are uh would we invest in them and sort of anything else we could uh, think of on the subject and I quite like the idea of covered calls, so I thought I would pick this one up. What I have is a long answer to say that no, I don't intend to uh, invest in one of these things. But the reasons why are not entirely sort of straightforward. I'm not going to say I never would, um, because never is tricky, right? If I saw a nice enough arbitrage opportunity, I'd buy nearly anything, I think, to be honest, if it stood out to me. So it's possible. But in the ordinary course of business, I don't uh, expect to be buying a covered call ETF. But let's start at the beginning for the moment then. So. What are covered calls, and let's go back even further that and say, What are calls? Calls are a type of option, and an option is a type of contract. If you own a call option, um, it will say three things on it it will say the name of a company or a ticker symbol, so let's say Amazon for a moment, it will say a number, a monetary number, so let's say $160, and it will have a date on it, so let's say the end of this year. Uh, and if you own a call option for Amazon at $160 with an expiry of the end of the year or a date of the end of the year, you can buy at some point, or you can take it to the person who sold it you and say, okay, I would like to buy 100 shares, because an option covers 100 shares in Amazon at 160 per share now, uh, assuming it's before the end of the year. Um, and so what that then means is the person who you bought the call from has to sell you those shares. Um, and they have to sell you them at that price, whatever price uh, Amazon is at. So if Amazon has gone... if um, for instance, I try and sell uh, Steve a call option on Amazon that looks like that. The stock then goes to 180 in July. Steve says, cool, okay, I'll take my 100 shares in Amazon at 160. Um, I have to sell them to him at 160, even though the open market's selling them at 180. Uh, if the stock goes, the stock's currently at 155, by the way. Supposing the stock stays at 150 between now and the end of the year, the entire thing. Well, Steve isn't going to say, um, I'll, I'll buy them at 160 then, uh, 100 or so. If he wants 100, Amazon shares will go and buy them on the open market at 150 or so or whatever I said to them. Um, he, nothing happens to his option. He doesn't have to buy them from me. His option just expires and that's the end of that. Um, but importantly, options have a value. Uh, if you think Amazon is going to go up, suppose you think Amazon is going to double over the next 12 months. Something that gives you the right to buy it at 160 with it currently at 155 is worth something to you. If I say, look, if you give me two quid, I'll give you a piece of paper that says you can buy 100 of them for me at 160 anytime between now and the end of the year. Well, that would be worth it. If you think the stock is going to 200, you would think, okay, I'll pay away two quid now. Um, When the stock hits 200, I'll buy 10 of them, uh, sorry, 100 of them at 160 and bank the difference, basically, and sell them again immediately on the open market for 200. Uh, So that's worth it for two quid. So in other words, options have value. Uh, if, you sell, if you give someone an option they ought to pay you uh, for, um, exactly how much they pay you depends on a whole bunch of stuff, what the stock is, what their price is, when the expiry is, so on and so forth, how likely people think the uh, the stock is to go through that number within that time. The further out of the money it is, i.e. Um, if you had an option for Amazon at 500 uh, or something, well, I'd probably be able to sell that for less than an option uh, on Amazon at 160 which it's nearly out at the moment. Okay, so far, so good. Um, That's buying options and owning options. Of course, you don't have to just buy and own options. They're call options anyway. Put options are the other way around. You sell them. So if you sell someone, if you own a put option, you want the stock to go down as much as possible. Um, I can say, okay, Steve, you have to buy 160 shares of Amazon off me at this price. Don't care that the price has gone through the floor. I have this contract that says you're buying uh, at this point. Uh, But anyway, covered calls uh, for the moment. The other thing you can do with, covered calls is you, uh, with calls, sorry, is you can sell them. Um, I could say, well, look, I would like to make some money. Uh, I will sell Steve a bunch of options contracts. He can have an options contract on Amazon. He can have one on Google. He can have one on Apple at various strike prices, and he'll pay me for all of them. So I'll get money up front, uh, and this is good. If I'm not that bullish on the stock, I think it's not going to go anywhere. Steve thinks it's going to go up. He may well buy a thing off me, and I will collect cash today. Uh, and hopefully for me, the thing will reach expiry um, at below the price written on it, at which point the option will be worthless. I'll have collected my money. End of transaction, basically. But selling these things is risky. So if the stock goes up, and it's really risky, by the way, and historically it has proven to be really dangerous for people who don't know what they're doing. Um, if I don't have a 100 Amazon shares and I sell an option on Amazon, I have to go and get them uh, if Steve wants to buy them later in the year. Uh, so what I have to do is buy them to him at, what, buy them at whatever the market price is, sell them to him at the price written on the option, and if there's a difference between them, I swallow the loss. And a few years ago, there was that really, really sad story on um, from Robinhood. Uh, often, internal control issues at Robinhood of the guy who'd taken his own life because he thought he was he'd lost 110. Grand, basically, he hadn't. What he'd done was sell a call option on Amazon. Um, And Amazon had gone through the price on that and his buyer had called on it. So his um, uh, account was showing a deficit for 100. This is pre-split, by the way, uh, Amazon shares. So a deficit of 100,000 or so where he had to go out and buy them and and pass them on. That deficit was going to get cut because it was going to get cut to the difference between the price he was buying them at and the price he was selling them at. He was down a couple of grand uh, maybe, which is not great, by the way. But it's not the hundred or so uh, that was going out. But all he saw was the money going out and not the money coming back in. Um, And ultimately that was, that was disastrous for him. You can cover off this risk slightly. Uh, And here is uh, where we get to the issue of covered um, calls then. You could just sell an option that you don't own the stock in and think, well, I'll buy it later if it comes to it. But that way your losses are really, your potential for loss is really, really high. Alternatively, you could think, well, look, I own 100 Amazon shares. I'm just going to sit here with them and I can think of a price that I would be willing to sell them at today. If someone gave me 180 for Amazon, I would say, OK, fine, you can, I'll, I'll sell uh, at 180 here. So, uh, and I have 100 Amazon shares, let's suppose. They're currently sat there not doing anything. I mean, if they were a dividend stock, they'd be collecting a dividend for me. Amazon isn't, but it isn't, uh, so it's not. But what I'll do then is I'll use my 100 Amazon shares and uh, use them to underwrite a call auction. Uh, I will say, okay, Steve, buy a call option from me. If the stock gets 180 it's yours. And to be honest, I'm happy to sell it to you 180 If it goes there, I think that would be uh, too high of a price. If it doesn't, I will just collect the money that I uh, kept here. So in other words, my exposure or my risk or my liability with this option is covered by the stocks that I own. Uh, I am only writing call options against things that I have. Worst case scenario for me is the roof comes off the share price. And I miss out on part of the upside because I capped it at 180 because I have to sell them to you at 180. Uh, and if I think 180 is a, a decent enough price to be selling, uh, kind of oh uh, well. Wish I could have sold them for more, but hey, never mind. These are covered calls. Um, so they are effectively ways of generating some cash using stocks that you already own, importantly. And the worst thing that happens is you end up missing out on some of the upside from the stocks that you own because you sell them at a price that you previously agreed. If that doesn't sound like the end of the world to you, and some extra income would be helpful. Um, then writing covered calls seems like a decent thing. I don't have a problem uh, with writing covered calls. I don't actually have a problem with uh, writing calls at all. Um, You collect a premium, you maybe sell the stock, uh, but that's fine here. And basically, as far as I can tell, a covered call ETF just does a load of this. Um, It owns a bunch of stocks. It writes a bunch of calls out on them. It collects a premium for them. And either sells at a high price or just lets the option expire worthless and does the same thing again. So it's a way of adding extra kind of cash to this. So far, so good. Uh, And I like it. But would I buy a covered call ETF? I said the answer was no. and Here is why. I would be happy to write calls against stocks that I own. I think any stock that I own, especially if I own 100 shares of it, there is a price at which I would let it go um, if someone was willing to give it. Uh, It varies in some cases. In some cases, I'm less clear on what that is. But there is definitely a price where I would say, Sure, you can take it from me at those prices. But think about what happens when I write a call option here. Um, What happens is I keep my stocks, I keep my money in my stocks, and I collect some cash for the bit of paper that may be worthless or may end up costing me my shares at a price that I'm okay to sell at. Um, That's all right. Think about when you buy into an ETF, you have to go and put cash in, uh, basically. You need to use your money to buy shares in that kind of thing. So it's different from writing the calls yourself. Uh, when you write the calls yourself, you bring in cash. When you invest in an ETF that does these sorts of things, you send out cash. Uh, and I can see, I think to my mind, there's a difference in terms of how I think of things of where I'm putting my money. I would rather that was in stocks. Um, and I can't think of a situation where I wouldn't be able to find a stock to buy. I mean, I'd have to be down on nothing to start off with, uh, which doesn't seem very likely. So I would always prefer, I think, with my own money um, to be sticking it into stocks uh, and owning bits of businesses and increasing my share in those companies um, than using it to invest into an ETF that's writing calls. That said, uh, if the option came to 212, which I don't think it will, um, at least not in the near future, I wouldn't mind writing call options for other people against the stocks that I have. It's not a problem I have with uh, calls or covered calls in general. Um, The reason I wouldn't buy into them is because I don't want to use cash for that. Uh, I, don't, I think I have better uses for putting my money into other places. I would use it to generate money rather than to commit money, I think is the way I would think about this. Steve, uh, calls, options, uh, covered calls, covered call ETFs. Any thoughts?
0: It's of no interest to me whatsoever. Um, I think it's just messing around, um, sort of trying to trying to predict the market. Um, when, when there's no need to, I mean, quite comfortably at the beginning of last year, you could have looked at Amazon's share price at 100, knowing that it'd been quite a bit under that um, at one point, and said, "Look, I'll take 120. Uh, if you, if you want to give me however much a share, um, might have only ended up being two, three dollars a share. Um, I'll give you um, the option to buy it at, at, at 120." And Amazon ended the year uh, getting on for 160. So what you essentially did was lose 40 dollars um a share uh, in share price appreciation for a couple of dollars up front at the beginning um and then you lose your amazon shares off the back of it as well so um that's not great um that's not um realistically um something i i would be interested in and I'm, I'm more than happy just to let my stocks run let the ones who pay a dividend pay a dividend and um yeah, just not mess around with stuff like this. I think is the, is the general gist. Of it. I understand why people would want to do it, and I think it's another one of those things that keeps the hands on the portfolio when potentially you should have your your hands off it more. Um, so as you know, my New Year's resolution Steve was to try and keep my hands off my portfolio. I think selling covered calls um would be something uh that would make me watch it more than I need to and probably feel incredibly nervous when we're at $121 and, uh, and I've got the call for uh, the cover call for 120. I think that would, <laughs> that would make me feel shit. And it probably made me feel even more shit when it raced up to 160 only a couple of months later. So it's not something for me. I don't necessarily have a problem with an ETF doing it. It's just, you've got to think about it as limited upside for you really in terms of an ETF. Um, I mean, would you rather buy a covered call e t f and just take a few uh, a few dividends out of it a year, or would you sooner run something like the Nasdaq, which returned fifty odd last year i I would certainly um look if I'm taking on that level of sort of options risk, I would probably just have the nasdaq itself and 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 let that run for me um so yeah, I think it's fine if people want to do it, it's not something I'm particularly interested in um But I'd be interested to see it on trading two-on-two. I think it gives people a little bit of flexibility. Uh, It is a good way of earning premiums maybe or earning dividends on stocks that don't pay dividends um, and then you can set the price as high as you want. You may only get a few pence per per share out of it. It is a good way of, uh, you know, rather than selling a portion of it, which is something that we would maybe advocate for. Um, But I'm just not certain it's something I'd be particularly interested in.
1: Yeah, ways of using shares as kind of collateral to generate extra cash is very 212, isn't it? I mean, I currently got some of my shares lent out and they're generating pence um, for uh, being lent to cover short positions, uh, I think. But uh, your point about limited upside and asymmetric risk is pretty good um, here. <clears throat> With an option, if you sell someone a call option here, even if it's covered, your best case scenario is the. Option expires worthless, and you keep the cash. Basically, there's no way for you to generate anything more out of this. You keep your shares, and you get the free money basically for um, that purpose. It does mean you're betting against your own stock, but that's okay. I mean, I personally wouldn't mind the price of some of my shares going down. I wouldn't mind buying more of them. But um, <clears throat> it's it, it's a case that you don't it, it, your potential call it downside or potential opportunity cost is unlimited right? Because Amazon, if you sold a, a call option at 160, could go to 200, could go to 500, could go to uh, 10,000 or whatever, right? The amount you would miss out on by selling the thing at 160 is potentially unlimited. The amount that you can gain, even if the thing goes through the floor, all that happens is your uh, option expires worthless. It's not um, a futures contract in the sense that no one is obliged to buy it off you at 160 going forward. Um, that's a That's basically a put option. Uh, If you own a put option, someone is obliged to buy the thing off you at 160. If you owned Amazon puts at uh, 100, say, you would be hoping that thing goes to two. um, And someone you can buy them in at two and sell them out again at uh, 100 or so. But options, importantly, the clue is in the name, which makes the risk kind of asymmetric. The best you can do if you sell a call option is um, uh, collect the premium. The worst you can do. Um, if you're covered on it, is miss out on an unlimited upside. And the worst you can do if you're not covered on it, i.e. naked on it, i.e. don't own the thing, is lose unlimited amounts, basically, because you have to go and buy the thing at whatever price it goes to, and then you sell them out again. I wouldn't mind having a go at covered call writing on 212 uh, or anywhere else for that matter. But um, I think the limited upside point is important um, here, and it's it's very much worth keeping that in mind it seems to be just something the idea of writing cover calls appears to be just kind of starting to um, gather some come into fashion a little bit at the moment and I'm I'm interested in whether that will uh, spread its way out a little bit so options are of course the other risk with an option um, which helps you if you sell the thing and doesn't if you buy the thing is that you have to be right about where the stock is going you also have to be right within the time set on the uh, option so a lot of kind of degenerate activity on uh, Robinhood involves like zero-day expiry options, i.e., same-day expiry options that expire close of business uh, on the S&P. That's mad, um, from what I can see of it, because of course the price of an option moves around. right? So if you have a call option on Amazon at 160, that thing is going to be worth more, uh, other things being equal, and that's important if the share price is 155 as opposed to if it's 120. Because chances of that getting through one for sixty are much better when it's higher. Uh, so even if the stock just moves up but doesn't move through, through your thing, you might be able to sell the option on. There's there are complications around that to do with time decay and theta and so on. But we won't go into those today. Hopefully that was a boring enough question. I uh, answer to that question. Sorry, it's a good question. I liked it um, from uh, Jesse. But Steve, uh, bring us back to sort of more familiar territory here. Talk about a stock.
0: Okie doke. So, um, so this is a new addition to my portfolio, as I mentioned at the beginning. And again, it, it is an old flame. It's something I've owned before. Uh, it's something that's in the capital incinerator pie uh, still at the moment. Um, But I've been taking another look at it, Steve, because a lot of the things that made me originally sell out of it haven't come true. And uh, I'm very interested to see uh, exactly why that is. And uh, yeah, I found some pretty interesting uh, bits and pieces. So. Um this is part of a sort of mini series I want to try and do because there's three stocks in this kind of area that I want to talk about. Um, and uh, if I get the time to write about the other two, um, you'll see them in an in, in the upcoming episode. So uh, this company is called Progeny. Uh, it's uh, a, a leading company. It specializes um, specializing sorry, in fertility uh, and family building benefits for employers and their employees. Its mission uh, is to empower individuals and families to pursue their family building dreams through a healthy, timely, and supported journey. Um, So, just to quickly sort of like go over the issue that uh, that the company's trying to solve. So, fertility rates in the world of pretty much collapsed. Um, In the last 50 or so years, they've they've essentially halved as nations have developed. And this is due to a number of factors. So there's uh, contraception um, and the knowledge of contraception has become more widespread. Uh, Of course, there is now the the need and the want uh, of women to work and have careers and have an education before starting a family. If wanting to to start a family at all and then there are also things like increased obesity and heart rate and heart disease and and all sorts of other issues that have meant that fertility rates have, have started to drop so here's an interesting stat for you Steve or a fairly sad stat um, amongst women in the u.s in the 18 to 49 age bracket one in five of these women will be unable to get pregnant naturally in a year of trying so this is largely down to a number of factors, and it is actually from both sides of the equation. Uh, but this is a real issue, Steve, and this is an issue that Progenia are trying to help solve. And and it is something that they really do help with, Steve. Um, they recently put out a piece of PR that announced that they had helped their thirty thousand Amazon employees start to create a family. And that's a high number. That was more than I expected from from one company. But it, it shows you just how great this company um uh, its is take up is when it's implemented in in these large companies. So, I want to give you a little bit uh, of uh, the sort of financials and the, the stats about this company. This is a, a small to medium cap. It's about three point seven one billion uh, in size. Uh, it's about forty percent off its pandemic highs when its expectations and, and, and valuations got ahead of themselves. Um, As of last year, uh, a year end, this is, um, it's did 780 million in revenue and under 31 million of net income. Um, And I'll save you the maths on that, Steve. That's over 100 times earnings uh, as of the year end. However, we're actually only two quarters into their new financial year and they've already done 31 million of net income. So that number is probably going to move into our favor very quickly. Uh, This is one that I think screeners are missing because it's got a high valuation at the moment. And I think that could be an opportunity from here. Uh, it's not just the bottom line that's growing fast, Steve. This isn't a company that's finished growing the top and uh, trying to screw the cash out of their customers. Um, revenue grew 45% in 2021. Uh, in twenty twenty two, it grew 57%. Uh, and this is with um, considerable headcount reductions in, in tech, which is one of their biggest um, their biggest kind of customers. Even with these large headcount reductions we've seen this year, Steve, revenue has grown 37% in the last quarter. So, look, there's a lot of big numbers going on here, but this is still very strong, very profitable growth. Um, so, if we break it down into segments, there's essentially two segments to this business. Uh, fertility benefit services revenue grew 35% year-on-year to $175 million. This is on the quarter, obviously. And pharmacy revenue grew 39% to $106 million. So both sides of the business growing very strongly. There's a couple of other metrics that uh, I would encourage you to track if you're interested in this business. And it's ART, which is Assisted Reproductive Technology. Um, they give you this in cycles. And this just gives you an idea of how much the service is being used by uh, by the clients. So that's up 35% this year. And then there's two other bits, client numbers and members. So now there's 5.43 million members, uh, up from 4.44 million members this time last year. And there's 392 clients, up from 282 clients last year. So growing, 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 growing. Uh, in terms of the balance sheet, Steve, super clean, 330 million in cash and zero debt. So I listened to the last call just to give uh, try and give some more information on the business. Uh, this quarter, um, progeny, um, induced their first intake with their new contract with the US Federal Government. This contract sees an initial 300,000 employees get the opportunity to use Progeny should they need to. This is a test by the government at the moment. If this is successful, this could become a very large opportunity for Progeny as it's rolled out. During the Q3 call, management mentioned that more employees are actually assessing health plans than in a normal cycle at the moment and fertility benefits keep coming up as a top concern when it comes to hiring and retaining their top top they also dropped hints that there was a number of opportunities that were actually postponed in this quarter but they were not cancelled in this pipeline so while growth has slowed somewhat it could have been a very different month if progeny a quarter sorry if progeny had been in a different macro situation and they still could realize these opportunities uh, for the bears out there that argue that employees are reducing their workforce is really three answers to this issue so i think we were in in sort of agreement that we're heading towards a soft landing in the U.S. and that there's potential rate cuts, meaning that the U.S. is close to a normalised, uh, U.S. economy is close to normalising. Um, this hints that reductions uh, in headcount are closer to ending um, than getting any worse from here. Headcount reductions are not causing unemployment levels to rise, um, meaning that it's likely that these employees are, are finding new jobs, usually elsewhere in tech. So... It's Progeny's job to onboard these new companies, um, so that's not really uh, something I'm considering to be a massive issue. Uh, And lastly, Progeny is already um, guiding to add another 85 new clients and 1.3 million new lives covered this year. And they have 100% retention rate, Steve, so they are largely unaffected by these headwinds. Um, In terms of valuation, I mean, trailing 12 months, we're looking at about 200 million in free cash flow, which I think is potentially a little bit high. Uh, So I've actually reduced this down on my um, reverse DCF. Looking through the balance sheet and the calls, um, I think there's been some opportune delays in CAPEX in the last couple of quarters because that number does seem artificially high. Um, So when I stick in some conservative figures uh, with a reduced amount of free cash flow, we only need about 12% growth in free cash flow per annum to meet this valuation. And we're talking about 35% top line expected so this is not unachievable here at all i'm not including for any dilution or any buybacks in that calc i don't think we're a million miles away from buybacks becoming a reality either so yeah this is a buy for me steve i i like the space i like the growth i like the management i think it's got some fantastic opportunities and i think i was probably wrong selling this one uh, a couple of years ago when i did have you come across this one steve before um have you ever had a look at it when i've spoke to you about it before
1: I had a look at it when you spoke to me about it before. I haven't looked at it again recently. Honestly, I sort of thought – I thought this initially looked when I was thinking interest rates were going to rise. I thought this looked like bankruptcy danger, uh, to be honest, because I was surprised you said this trades at a high P.E. The reason being I was surprised it traded at a P.E. at all. Uh, I wasn't aware this was profitable at the moment. Last time I looked, it was not And my general rule with unprofitable things is if I can't figure out how they get to profitability, I tend to stay away because it makes it too hard for me to try and run a DCF calculator because I can't realistically try and put the numbers in in any way. Uh, So I ignored it before. Um, The point you make about fertility rates being going down in general is a good one. Um, Progeny is in a good position to try and do that. 30,000 Amazon employees is a lot, um, uh, you know, just out of Amazon. Uh, Balance sheet-wise, I wouldn't expect a company like this to have any debt. I'm not sure. I think they ought to be. Uh, Interest rates have just been quite high. I wouldn't want them to be taking debt out here. Buyback is um, kind of interesting. Did you say they've been cutting headcount recently or layoffs um, or anything like that? What's kind of moving them towards profitability, I guess? Is it just kind of increasing scale that's pushing them over the edge?
0: It's scale. They have actually been profitable Hmm. for the last few years now. I think they've uh, gap net income for the last... Interesting uh three three and a bit years so um but i say it could have been a while since we last spoke about this one steve to be honest i'm trying to figure out in my head when we sold it they did have a small dip in profitability at the end of last year um, and i think that was more because the um sort of size and uh, contracts that they were bringing in was probably meaning that they were having um reduced pricing on it um but um that seems to not be the case so far this quarter because they've basically covered everything they managed to do uh, last year. In the first two months, they were already ahead of where they finished last year. So, um, no, this is not something um, where they're actually reducing headcount. This is something where they're just growing uh, at rapid speed and uh, starting to take advantage of the of the growth.
1: Net margins are currently around 4% or so. 718 revenue, 31 in net income. I haven't actually worked that out, but I'm going to assume it's around 4-ish. When do you see these kind of landing in the future? I assume wider uh, than 4%. I mean, you pointed out that revenue is still growing pretty fast. So even if you hold that 4% margin sort of steady-ish, uh, we get to some okay numbers sort of reasonably quickly. It's 100 times earnings, but nonetheless, um, keep taking lumps out of it in the uh, mid-double digits, uh, which isn't a expression we use often. That will start to come down fairly smartly, but um, I'm assuming there's going to be margin expansion from here, not just kind of from buyback activity, but uh, but well, yeah. where do you think it's reasonable to land here? It's not a kind of software business in the in the purest sense of being like a platform or something. So there's going to be more cost to it than that. But yeah, do you have any thoughts on that?
0: Yeah. So look, looking at the competitors, uh, in this sector, mm. it looks like margins fall between eight and 9%. So there's a potential here that the margin could essentially double. Um, yep. that is a lot of the competitors don't have the pharmacy uh, angle to the, the business either. So I actually think this has a little bit of a moat that's developing at the moment. Steve, I was trying to work that out. And I think the moat might help them drive even higher margins than that. Um, but I'm, I'm, there's, there are competitors that are in a broader space. They don't. They don't focus on um, fertility care at all. It's just part of a, a broader spectrum of offering. But Progeny, solely focusing on fertility care, has been able to sort of squeeze the margins uh, of this sector quite. Quite hard already and i think they can squeeze it even more especially as this new pharmacy arm of the business comes along which i think they have the potential to, to just try just up the prices on from time to time and uh, and and drive um drive profitability a little bit higher so i it's also not an issue if it doesn't go up as high as that. i mean if we end up at six or seven percent margins when you increase in revenue and the top line by 30% 33% a year um with no projections on slowdown at the moment um then you can settle for 5 or 6% margins um because you know that will soon uh, that will soon drive that net income forwards
1: yeah if that can just uh grow at the same rate that's that's perfectly good you mentioned somewhere along the line 100% retention rate um remind me what they're retaining there
0: that is um that is clients uh, keeping on board with Progeny. So, uh, clients are not swapping away from uh, from Progeny once they're in. They seem to be locked in. Uh, they like the service. They think they're getting good value, um, and more often not than not, they uh, they expand the service um, rather mm-hmm. than uh, rather than diminish it.
1: So that's kind of evidence of a moat, then, uh, right? I mean, it's not by itself a moat, but it is an indication that maybe there is something here that's causing people to. Stay in this um, system that there's, I guess you might call them a switching costs uh, moat one way or another, Which uh, and however that kind of works. And that can be a really good uh, moat source, right? High switching costs. It can cut both ways in the sense of anyone they don't get the first time, it becomes harder to get if there are switching costs in this. But maybe that's kind of where your your sort of moat source uh, comes from. That's the place I look for when I think of evidence of something like that.
0: I think it has a network effect as well, though, Steve. Because I think that the more and more clients that come on board, the more uh, fertility doctors that want to be part of the part of the service, and the the better mm-hmm. and higher amount of fertility doctors that come on, the more um, that um, that that clients want to come on and use and, and use Progeny. Um, so I think there's a, a maybe a, a, a weak or, or mild network effect going on there as well. But they have a few other things as well. Like like I said earlier, there's the, the focusing on a single area uh, of benefit makes them uh, able to develop like a deep expertise in the, uh, expertise in the field. Uh, they can negotiate better deals because they're they going solely volume in these areas, and they can build better relationships with 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 specialists um they also have a, a quite interesting data driven approach with this uh smart cycle technology that they've they've developed which uses data from all other past successes to try and predict um ways that they can make uh, newer clients uh, be more successful in, in in their attempt to have a family as well so uh, this just goes through everything steve this isn't just um ivf and things like that it goes through surrogacy and um Many other uh, ways of um, is it called ICI direct injection? Um, um, yeah, it, it covers a broad spectrum of services. This isn't just you know an IVF service. So I think it's I think it's really exciting business. You I think it's they're, they're, they've got a nice feel to them. They're doing a nice thing, um, uh, and and yeah, I, I don't know. I'm really into it at the moment.
1: Long growth runway, and it might be a good time to be getting into this kind of thing as well. You mentioned that in terms of the stock, 40% off its kind of pandemic highs, which uh, maybe this is the kind of company where we think those pandemic highs were perhaps a bit overexcitable. But, um, Interest rates coming down, it's these kind of fast growing uh, things that need to uh, probably don't quite generate enough cash to fund all of their uh, growth or the growth they might like. Some lower cost debt might be helpful here, or even higher uh, equity and therefore lower cost of equity might be a helpful thing here.
0: Yeah, potentially, absolutely. Um, only if they need it, though, Steve. They've got this 330 million mm. cash pile at the moment. Mm. It's like 10% of the market cap. So they're not exactly sure of cash, Steve, being a cash-generative business. They, they've got options here to, to, to push on a bit. I guess there is another element to the moat, which have just come into the top of my head. I would assume, I need to check this, that they probably have pretty high barriers to entry because I think this is a, a fairly specialist area um, that... Um, you know there's not going to be a startup that's just going to want to wade into this and try and figure it out i think um you you need some specialist knowledge and uh yeah i think uh it's what specialist knowledge and expertise and i think that probably stops startups just rushing into here to to try and steal bits of market share from them and and they're evidently the, the you know one of the leaders uh, and evidently um um you know, at a decent cost as well, because the federal government taking up a contract with them is a bit of a show, a flex of strength from Progeny that they, you know, they were chosen to offer this over a more broad um, service. You know, which maybe a broader service could have offered a, a cheaper overall price on the health plan, but the the federal government here have decided to go with a a broad health plan and a specialist, which sort of lends me to think that potentially Progeny here are, are being seen as the experts, which which is a really good thing in a sector, you you, you know, if you can find the uh, profitable experts in a fast-growing sector, Steve, then that, that potentially can be a, a very lucrative investment.
1: Yeah, that long growth runway that you mentioned, and and I clearly agree with, and, and I think pretty much everyone would agree with here, is the kind of thing that is likely to attract competition from above. This isn't particularly, this isn't niche in terms of having a niche market. It has a kind of um, growing market here. And when competitors see that, particularly bigger ones, they have deep pockets, they can kind of compete fairly well. The thing they can't do very easily is generate significant know-how um, or indeed unseat things that are existing contracts if you already have the best customer base. If you saw someone kind of looking downwards at this, and I'm not quite sure who I think that would be, but uh, even a UNH or someone like um, that, Um it might be more tempting, I guess, just to try and buy progeny uh, than to set up and compete um, here, right? This could be a, an interesting arm for the right kind of med tech, uh, bigger conglomerate. Not quite sure. I think I know what that is at the moment. But nonetheless, small enough to be an acquisition target, too, was my kind of final thought here, I think.
0: That's my... that's my sort of biggest worry with this uh, is that it won't be allowed to realize um just mm-hmm. just how good a, a company it can be if um you know one of the health tech uh, one of the health insurance tech companies just comes and and uh, and takes it straight off the ground or perhaps an insurance company themselves just looks at this and thinks this might be a nice little tack to our uh, you know to our list of services and and takes them on as um you know maybe as an independent arm of of a, a larger insurance company um I mean, I would expect a decent premium uh, on today's price if somebody was to take them out because I think um, I think uh, the, the the founder who is still in charge looks at this business and thinks, you know, I I think there's a lot of potential here, and I'm I am inclined to agree with him. Yep, cool.
1: Um, in that case, join us uh, maybe over the coming weeks and months potentially for the other two parts of Steve's trilogy on these things. You mentioned there was another couple on the. On the way, potentially, we will see about getting to those as and when we get the chance, although both of us are new-ish dads, so it's difficult to do things in much of a timely fashion. But we'll see what we get to, uh, and probably at some point we'll get to those things. Anyway, we're well through the hour mark with uh, talking about covered calls and reproduction. So um, thank you all very much for listening, and we will see you next week on The Playing Fuzzy Show.